if you were here last week, we reflected. We were reflecting on what the church is, particularly our church, and we walked back into our history. I had all these cool pictures of all the different places that we've met on Sunday morning and how uh, our story as a church family is one that is marked uh, by movement and journey and continued most recently in our move downtown uh, to this location into this new neighborhood. And we looked at how all those moves uh, have reshaped us as a congregation because moving is a disorienting thing, is it not? I mean, when you move, there's still all these boxes you have to unpack, find new places for old things. It's a disorienting experience, um, and it bends us into new shapes. And we talked about how disorientation uh, of a move with the church can bend the church into a new shape. And when a church moves, it changes. Um, it changes as well. And we're being reshaped through this. And the truth is it will look different in a year. It'll be different. Something will be unique about us in this area of town. But in the middle of all that movement and journey, we're reminded of this one thing that is true of the church. And it was this line from last Sunday that it takes a church to make a church. Let's say this together. It takes a church to make a church. That's right. That's exactly what it, it does. Not a building or an idea uh, or a program, but a people. People make up the church. The play, this place is a direct result of this people, period. There's no uh, difference between church and people. That's what it is. And church is also not a bench sport, by the way. We're all participating in the very thing that we're building, enjoying, or critiquing. We're all a part of that. And the best churches understand this. The best churches, and by best I mean the healthiest, have a deep sense of the real shared responsibility that exists in a church in order to build and to curate a very healthy community of worship and service as best they can. It takes a church to make a church and how it looks and how it feels and how it sounds. He's left that kind of in our hands, perhaps because every church is in a unique neighborhood, a unique city, a unique situation. And so it has to bend and reshape to its surroundings. And so we're kind of left with the choice to decide how we look and feel and sound as a congregation, which kind of leads to this sub-question. It takes church to make a church. Great. But what sort of church are we making? Maybe you were thinking that last week, or maybe you weren't, and I just made you think that, and that's fine too. But what sort of church are we making? And the sub-question here beneath that is, well, what sort of church does the teachings or do the teachings of the New Testament and the early Christian writers and even Jesus encourage us to make? Is there a model or a sketch of, or some kind of rendering of what sort of community the church should be? Can we find that in the Bible? Man, I've been wanting to show you guys this since like 10 years ago. But I just haven't figured out how to show it to you for those in the back. So uh, this was given to me by the cousin of the guy who made this, and I'll share the story in a moment. But when I left my last church, uh, they were giving me all these gifts. So you, you need to do the same for Kyle. It's very appreciated. <laughs> Give him things like this, you know. But uh, a guy walked into the youth room one night. He was the cousin of this, the guy who made this, an older gentleman, worked at the church. He was our maintenance guy. It was a larger church. We had a maintenance guy. Um, I'm the maintenance guy here. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> but he, he came walking across the youth room with this thing in his hand. And I was like, this is my gift. This is what he's giving me. It's in a crappy frame. It's the glass shakes. And, and this, then he comes up to me and says, hey, listen, 
as you know, uh, Ward Patterson passed away a few months ago. And I was like, I did know that. And I'll tell you who that is in a minute. And he said, but he wanted you to have this. And I was like, oh my gosh. So Ward Patterson was a professor at, when I was an undergrad. And he's a biblical archaeologist. That, that was his field. We loved this guy because he was old, single, drove a van, you know? <laughs> like an econo line, like with the seats and like whatever. And when, when I started my freshman year, it was his first year at the college. And one of the classes that he taught, just because, you know, you have to teach things they tell you sometimes, was he taught public speaking. And this biblical archaeologist taught public speaking, among other things, and he taught history as well. But I remember sitting in his public speaking class, and my friend and I were in the back row, which is where we lived. And we were in the back row, and somebody was giving a speech, and Ward was sitting next to us. And the pant leg of his left leg was high because he was sitting down. And you could see the remnants of this really amazing tattoo, right? All up and down his left leg. And we're just like first-year Bible college students. We're like, dude, look at that tattoo. He's going to hell. Look at that tattoo, you know? <laughs> and we didn't know, you know? And uh, so we, got, we just like fell in love with this guy because he was like, he was obviously a little different. And he had a blowgun. Do you know what I'm talking about? And for like these big school things, they would have Ward Patterson come out and they would put balloons on the back wall of the gym and he would just knock them out with this blowgun. And we're like, he's Indiana Jones, like this guy. And then we learned he was an archeologist and we're like, it's totally, it's he. And one uh, weekend he asked my friend and I if we wanted to go to Indiana with him. He, back in the 70s, he started one of the campus ministries at Indiana University, and it was still up and running, and he was like, I'm going to go see some football players, and you guys can go to a football game, and I grew up here, I was like, an IU football game? Who cares, you know? And, uh, but it ended up being amazing, he played Michigan State, I remember, and, um, but, so we drove to Bloomington, Indiana with him, which is a really cool college town, and uh, got to know him really well, but here's the thing, when he passed away, people had to get into his home, and he was, again, the single guy archaeologist, eccentric. And the guy just had tons of these things in his, in his house and bags of cash. Like it was like, this guy was so wealthy. Uh, but that's another story. So this is a rubbing from a relief. So right up against the stone itself from ancient Babylon. This was done in the late 50s, early 60s. The date isn't clear, but something around the 60s, early 60s. And what it is, it's a piece of fabric, and Ward Patterson developed a way to put fabric on the actual relief and do the rubbing and not ruin the relief. So he kind of was one of these people who came up with this like new way of getting these reliefs and these rubbings. It's called a rubbing, which is a terrible name, but uh, that's what it is. And so it's been sitting in my house for 10 years just up on the bookshelf. And every now and then I'll look at it because it's very cool because like this, the only, this, this piece of fabric is the only thing between us and something thousands of years ago. So cool. And, uh, and he just had tons of these things and gave me one. It's signed on the bottom. But, so I just thought y'all might like to see that. But what's interesting to me when I think about this is this is one of those things I get to look at again from time to time and reflect on how closely connected it is to the ancient past. So the proximity of this piece of fabric to the ancient rendering is completely flush. Like it's as close as it can get. 
The transfer is entirely physical, fabric to stone, as close as you can get to the original. Now, our church, Atlanta Christian Church, is part of a movement in Western Christianity called the Restoration Movement. It began in the hearts and the minds of congregations in 19th century America. And it was a movement that was committed to the unity of believers. And let me explain this for a moment. This was a time in American history when denominationalism was very high and even violent on occasion. And within the walls of fighting congregations and on the streets filled with churches too busy with the us versus them to do anything substantial to the kingdom of God, keep in mind on the same street in the South, you're going to get first, second, third Baptist church within three miles of each other. That's a problem. And so this is sort of the thing that drew their attention towards unity. And these people stood up and made it their life's mission to bring unity to the church and to dismantle whatever it was that was killing the church from within its own walls. It's not an uncomplicated mission, but their game plan was actually very simple. And it was to get as close to the oldest renderings of the ancient church as possible and to rub in the template to their own. That was their mission. How close can we get to the ancient church, for, you know, basically when it was at its best, and let that rub off into our own? There's a lot of static between the world we live in and the ancient church of back then, in those days following the resurrection of Jesus. And at the heart of this movement, and we're not the only ones that make this our mission, but at the heart of their movement then was this determination to walk around as much of that static as possible and to find their way back to the original place and time, hoping and praying that something would rub off. Now, the word radical actually means root. The word radical actually means root. Radicals are not outliers, but they're actually those who are trying to take people back to central matters of truth. That's why they seem radical. That's why they're frustrating. The prophets were radical types, pulling Israel back to the basics, the root of their nationality and their calling. Ours is a movement of radicals. And one of the reasons this is such a hard task is simply because the writings in the New Testament give us only a handful of sketches of what the church looked like then and how it functioned. And nowhere in the New Testament do we find anything like a manual for church life and formation. We, all we get are these unfinished drawings of what the church looked like. But there is one, and I want to take you there today. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, if you have a Bible, here's the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. I don't think we'll get to 21, although it might be the most important verse. Um, that's biblical humor, and that's why you didn't laugh. So, uh, oh yeah, it is. Most, okay. Uh, <laughs> But there is one, there are more than one, but there's this one text, and this is one rendering that tells us so much about the ancient church. It doesn't tell us how to find a new, new location or how to best set up chairs in this place, because we still don't know that answer. But it tells us what kind of church we are to be making. And it does this by telling us what sort of thing God is up to in the cosmos. So it tells us the church is supposed to be about whatever it is that God is about, and it invites us to join him in that work. I don't know who's credited with this quote, but it's beautiful that the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. 
So the church doesn't have to go out and find its like, what are we about? It's simply finding out what God is about and recognizing that God has a people, a church, that participates in that. Now, one warning before we get into this text. This passage calls the church, us today, to embrace more chaos than order, more mess than shine, and more problems than solutions. This passage invites the church to stand in that space between brokenness and renewal and to just be okay with that and to be happy about that and to be joyful about that. So as I'm going to read this whole text to you, and then we'll go back and just hit a few things. Are you there? I don't mean are you there like theoretically, are you in the room, but in the text. Okay. Here we go. Verses 17. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we read some of this last week, he is a new creation. Say that phrase, new creation. New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, as we step into this ancient text uh, for just a few moments this morning, I pray that you um, allow it to read us, to, to speak to us, to expose us, to shine light on the places we need to work on, to inspire us towards these incredible ideas. God, this is a rendering of what you want your church to be. And so we pray that we can see that and it can rub off on us. And it's in your name we pray, and everyone said, amen. amen. Now, some necessary backdrop. Paul is writing to a church in the ancient city of Corinth in the mid-first century, so sometime in the 50s. Oh, the 50s, right? So he's writing to this church that he helped start, spent about 18 months there, and then moved on, but Paul was very known for sending letters of correspondence. And Corinthians is really confusing because we have first and second Corinthians, but in reality, it's the second and fourth. There are two letters we're missing, and the whole correspondence from the church to Paul we don't have. So it's like reading one side of a text message. We've got to figure out what he's talking about, right? Are they going to dinner? Does he like the new band? I don't know what he's talking about. So thus the, the difficult work of biblical studies. But this one is not so bad. This particular text is quite uh, simple. But back to Corinth, it's quite an interesting city in the ancient world, well known for its propensity really to push the social and moral boundaries further and further and further outward. The ancient phrase, Corinthiazomai, say that, Corinthiazomai means to live like a Corinthian, is a well-earned title, right? So right on to Corinth. Our city of Atlanta has some nice, interesting, seedy things, but at least we don't have a city-funded, sanctioned, and endorsed temple of prostitution, as part of our social structure. So just one of the many wonderful things and reasons to visit ancient Corinth, right? Uh, or as one great theologian from a land far, far away might have said, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. 
So uh, I lost a third of you, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I don't think I should leave that up there. <laughs> so, okay, because you're already Googling some of you. Okay. But in the midst of a community in a city like Corinth, a small group of young believers in Jesus were forging their way as a new church. It's not easy. And I'll tell you why it's not easy, and you know this to be true. It's hard to live a new life in the same old neighborhood. Are you with me on that? Hey, guys, I'm a follower of Christ now. Really? This is going to be awkward. So it's very difficult to live a new life in the same old neighborhood. And the early Christian thinkers and writers believed that the resurrection of Jesus ushered in a whole new world, a new creation, as Paul would call it. And Paul is the loudest in that bunch of people who believed that. And with a new world comes a new way of life. And one of the big things you see in these two letters from Paul is this ongoing conversation with the Corinthians about their new life in this new world and about how faith in Christ is not just about information, like he, he's God's son, he rose from the dead, etc. That's all information. But it's mostly about transformation. We get information and transformation mixed sometimes. We confuse them in faith. That I'm learning things, but is it transforming me? And so change should be happening. This is one of the things that Paul hits on quite a bit in this section of the letter. This text is a push in that direction. And it's also the text that gives a clear template for the kind of church God is making and what sort of community this should be. So I want to briefly just hit three things that are in this passage uh, and point out how they each fit into the kind of church that we're trying to make. And the first is this idea of new creation. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. This is one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite verses since high school. Uh, and I think it's mostly because of the promise that it holds. And if you read it over and over again yourself, I think you'll fall in love with the two. But the verse is pretty clear. It doesn't need much help. You can sort of see what's going on here. It has enough inspiration in it to be quite attractive, that there's something new in Christ, that he makes all things new in us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also something very profound in what Paul is saying. And what he's saying is rooted in this conviction uh, in the promise that God is renewing all things. In the original text, by the way, the phrase, or the part of the phrase that says, he is a new creation, he is a, is not there. In the ancient Greek text, it's not there. It only says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Just drop the mic, new creation. That right there is a new creation. It doesn't say he is a, that's for us slow English types. We need to, we need to feel that. He is a new creation. But in the ancient text, it's just Paul saying, Christ equals new creation. And if you're in that, then you're new. And so it's not just the person who is a new creation, but that person is participating in a new world, a world that's being made new again and again and again in Christ. Another way of saying it is this. Let me read this to you. As if I'm not reading the other things. Another way of saying this is this. To be a follower of Jesus means to live with a very real sense of optimism, knowing that what is happening inside of us as well as all around us is this God-sized project of renewal and reconciliation. To be active, to be a Christian is to participate in those things. Why are you a Christian? Oh, because the tomb is empty. It's on. 
God's making all things new. That's why I'm a Christian. I'm, in, I'm into that. I'm participating in that. And so when you enter our building on Sunday mornings, and when you hear music playing while you're getting coffee and catching up with old friends, when you stand and sing and share in the communion together, what we're doing is pointing out with our voices and with our songs and with our rituals the belief that God is making all things new and that all is not lost. Like, that's like one of the best ways to think about it. That all is not lost, that there's hope both in this life and for this world because simply resurrection makes it very difficult for things like hopelessness and pessimism and cynicism to breathe. It makes it very difficult for those things to catch their breath. It sucks the air out of those rooms. Hopelessness has no, they have no, like, I don't know what the word is. They have no chance in an empty tomb. Amen? And so we hold on to this verse that whoever we are and whatever our personal station, that God knows how to turn the page of our life and write a new story every time. We bring to God who we are, and he turns the page, and he begins to write a new story. God's making all things new, and we get to be in on that. Friends, this is the first rubbing against the original. This is our first etching of what the church is supposed to be about, that new creation is part of the original pressing of the church. If there was ever a question as to what we're about around here, it's first this right here, that in Christ, new creation. Say that phrase again, new creation. New creation. That's it. What's your church about? New. New creation. What does that mean? We don't really know, but it's new. That God is making all things new. Secondly, reconciliation. Look at verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, Paul says who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God is making all things new, but here's the thing. He's not doing that with new things. He's doing that with old things, broken things, ruined things. God takes old things like our lives and our experiences and our downfalls and our just straight-ahead prodigal decisions, and he rebuilds and redeems and reclaims. Reconciliation is this picture of God returning to get what is his anyway and to take back what always had belonged to him. Now, the phrase being reconciled in the Greek is a fascinating word or a phrase, but it means both to exchange but also to be received with honor. That's huge. On the one hand, we have this image of God in a relationship of exchange with each of us, that discipleship, following Jesus, being his apprentice, whatever phrase you want to use, is a relationship of exchange, of us in rhythm trading out less of ourselves for more of him. Are you with me on that? It's a relationship of exchange. And the main exchange is less of me, more of him. Less of me, more of him. That's the exchange. So you have that piece of it. But on the other hand, we have this image of God as kind of this, like this welcome mat of us being allowed to enter into his presence without fear that we're all welcomed here. 
Paul says that God was, through Christ, reconciling all things to himself so that when you and I read and listen to the Jesus story, we're letting this message of reconciliation fall on us, reminding us that God has fashioned himself on a path to make sure that we all know the way back home. And one of the central messages of Jesus is that there is a way home. There is a way home. One of the most polarizing things Jesus said was, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We fixate on that. What does that mean? Well, I don't quite actually know. There's all these different ideas about what that means. No one gets to the Father except through me. But one thing is true about what he's saying there is he's simply saying to us, no one else is coming for you. That I will be the way through which and by which you find your way back home. Now, one thing I want to say about this part of the passage, it's good for me to hear, it's good for you to hear, is that it is God through Christ who does the reconciling, not us. We don't do that. We are his voices for what he is doing, but we are not God. Amen? I say this because if we make it, if we make reconciliation the soundtrack of our church family, then the need for reconciliation in people's lives will become obvious in our midst. If, it, if word gets out that that's a place, that's a community where you can bring all your, you fill in the profanity word, and God will make all things new, then that need will become obvious. And it's easy to find ourselves in a place where we have the answers for other people's lives. And we know what's best for them spiritually from our perspective. And yes, when we're in community with friends who ask for support as they try to walk the Jesus way, we have the green light to offer input and direction. But even so... We are not God. We are simply voices of his mission and of his grace and mercy. It's God who does the reconciling. So it's very easy in a church our size to go, hmm, it's interesting that he or she is here. But that's not our job. Are you with me on that? In fact, and you'll hear this in my ending, just to give it away, the messier the better. The best church is the most chaotic church. Religion makes things efficient and clean, but the gospel drags all of us into the mud, and that's a beautiful place to be. Now, this is the second rubbing against the original. This is the second thing we get as we rub our calling against the calling of the early church, that what is God doing in the world? He's taking it back and finally, let me close with this. We are new creation's voice. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That we are new creation's voice. This part of the template is actually very simple. That we are the voice of God's work in the world. And we've been given the role as God's ambassadors, allowing God to make his appeal through us. Say that phrase, through us. Through us. When I was growing up, and it's still this way, you need to be more like Jesus. Did you ever hear this? What would Jesus do? Well, he would do a miracle and come back from the dead. I can't do that, you know? You need to be more and more like Jesus. And I think that's fine. But I think that's also just really unfair. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
Jesus. It's, not, it's, not, it's never going to work out. So the more and more I read the gospel stories, I'm like, I can't be like Jesus. Every, the Sermon on the Mount, I can't do that. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, I'm out. I'm just completely out. It's because it starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm out. I'm arrogant, prideful. I have trouble with that. I can't do that. So from the go, I cannot be like Jesus. But Jesus has this crazy relative named John, John the baptizer, this guy who took people by the neck and threw them in the river and brought them back up. And people were like, he's crazy. He's totally crazy. I can be like John. <laughs> no, stay with me. This is good. This is not just improv. I've thought about this. What was John's job? John was technically the last prophet in the tradition of Israel. And what's a prophet's job? A prophet's job is to stand and look at the people and go, you need to come back. And that's the way. And so John would baptize people in the Jordan, the river, the crossing between, at that time, civilization and the wilderness, moving from unknowing to knowing. John placed himself strategically in the Jordan River and baptized people into a new life. And here's the thing. I can't be like Jesus, but I can be like John. I can stand there where people make that transition for the first time or the hundredth time. I can stand there in the mess of a dirty Middle Eastern river, depending on the time of the year, and allow all that stuff and just look terribly frightening and I can stand there in the middle and help people get across to a new life. I can do that. Because that doesn't require me to raise from the dead. That doesn't require me to be completely brilliant. That doesn't require me to come up with something like blessed of the poor in spirit and everybody's head blows up. I don't have to do that. <laughs> I just have to stand there and say, oh, the way is that way and I can help you get there. I don't even know if the church is Christ-like. I think the church is more John-like. The church is just sitting on the road home as kind of a rest stop because everybody's trying to find their way back to God. Everybody's trying to get to that place where they're finding their way back to him. And sometimes they're finding their way back to him for the hundredth millionth time because we all wander. We all have to go back through the river. We all need somebody like a John that says, look, I don't stand on the cross but I stand in the crossing from this life to the next. And it's dirty right here because all of our stuff ends up here. And I think the church stands on the road back to God and says, oh, are you looking for the way home? You can come with us because we're going there too. Amen? Looking for God? Great. Come with us because that's where we're headed as well. Let me close with this. Um, man, I'm all about these. So I took this picture of my phone. Can you tell? My son and I are actually all about it. This is a record. This is a vinyl. I'm familiar with that. But we are into finding original pressings of records. Now, my son has his list. It's very narrow. Rolling Stones, uh, Zeppelin. If he's feeling benevolent, a Grateful Dead album. Like if he wants to make his dad happy. Me, I don't care. I just look for the original pressing. I like to find these rare finds. And I bought this one uh, several weeks ago. We were digging through the record bins, and boom, there it was. 
REM's 1987 document. Any fans? Two people. Thank you. Two people. You're missing out. You're missing out. This was the, this saved the 80s, man. I went to high school. This saved the 80s. Uh, but anyway, so I found a pull down. It's like, now here's the thing. I haven't even opened it yet because it says men condition. Now I'll play it, but I haven't opened it yet. But we always look for the, now what's an original pressing? Original pressing is an original version of the record. Okay? Sometimes called first pressings. There's other languages. But original pressing means when the record came off the press, this was in the first batch. So this is old. It's very old. Uh, here's the thing about an original pressing, if you collect records. They don't, they don't actually sound very good. They, they usually don't. We have an original pressing. My parents bought it in England. We have an original pressing of Led Zeppelin II with the British pricing on it. And it sounds terrible, which is terrible because that's, an ama that's, like, that's the only album you need from them. And, uh, but it sounds really bad. Why? Because it's so old. It's dirty. It's got cracks in it. There's often scratches. It skips. You just have to deal with it. If you get the original pressing, 95% of the time, it doesn't sound good. Because this album, you can buy this album now in vinyl because that's what's cool now, and it's all remastered. They take it back in the studio, they pull the tapes up, they make it sound amazing. Like, you're like, oh, they had a bass player. I didn't know they had a bass player. Like, <laughs> you don't hear that on the first one, right? And so they go back in, they remaster it. And then they re-release all nice. The 180-gram vinyl, it weighs 15 pounds. It's got a digital download card for the, if you want to get the MP3s. It's like amazing. But you pick up the original pressing, it's probably crap. But it's really cool to have. Because it's, this is it. You pull it off the shelf, you go, when this came out, this is what came out. Right? But it doesn't always sound good. When I think about the church, I'm all about the original pressing. The original pressing is dirty, it's messy, it skips, the quality isn't great. Church history is clear. The church became remastered early, within the first few centuries. It cleaned itself up. No, you can't come in here anymore. Very early, the church started to build the walls and cleaned itself up. But in the original pressing, it's a hodgepodge of people with all sorts of backgrounds, and it probably wasn't pretty, and it probably didn't sound very good. And if we took that and brought it up to our day-to-day, -day, it wouldn't look great. But that's what we're supposed to be about, the original pressing of the church, as close as we can get and 95% of the time, it doesn't look or sound very great. Now, it doesn't mean the church doesn't make things good. Like, you know, when you take your kids downstairs, it's not as, like, it's not as though we go, you know what, we really just don't really care about your kids. So as you can see, we have nails and things laying around. It's not about that. It's, it's not about that at all. In fact, we'll make things better. But when I'm talking about the original pressing of the church as a family, we have to learn to be okay with all sorts of people that come into our midst, amen? That we'll do everything we can as a church leadership to offer the best whatever it is. We'll remaster stuff, that's great. But we're not gonna change the original pressing of what the church is about, which is about people being made new. 
And if you notice in our church family, gosh, this feels kind of messy. We're kind of in a messy season. That's good. You're looking around and thinking, this is kind of weird. It's kind of people really broken. Perfect. That's the original pressing. If you look around and go, everybody seems really with it. Two things are happening. A, everybody's lying. <laughs> or B, we need to shake things up. The church is a place where we invite people into because it's safe. And I've said this several weeks ago. It should be the safest place to be human. The safest place to be human. And let God do the reconciling, not us. But we'll set up the, we'll set up the date. We can't make you marry God, but we'll arrange the date. We'll be a place where you can come and encounter him in such a way that when you leave, yeah, you're convicted, yeah, you're challenged, yeah, all that stuff, but underneath or around or above all of that, what you heard most is, gosh, there's something new. I can be made new again. Amen? So that's it. What kind of church are we making? It takes a church to make a church, but what kind of church are we making? Well, it's really up to you. I can say things, but it's really up to you. But we want to make a place where the world can come in, whoever they are and whatever station they hold in life, and to hear loud and clear that God is making all things new and that we're simply voices for that. Amen.